The following podcast may be unsuitable for children or more sensitive listeners and may contain explicit language. Live from the Green Mill in Chicago, it's the Paper Machete, a weekly live magazine, issue date August 30th, 2014. You are at a live magazine. You're going to hear comedians, journalists, and orators talking about current events, pop culture, and American manners. You are at a weekly salon in a Chicago saloon. My name is Christopher. I am your editor-in-chief, go-go boy, cabaret cabbie, show business shaman, impish impresario, and masters less master of ceremony. Table of contents. This week, we'll kick off this rowdy infotainment occasion with a story of Burger King's new tax evasion. Our analysis will simply take the cake when we break down the Napa Valley earthquake. Our solemn prayers will give you the shivers as we hold a quiet vigil for the great Joan Rivers. And our headliner today ain't no comedy leper. In fact, it's The Daily Show's Jordan Klepper! And your tidy wise we rocked off by White Mystery. Plus, this week is the final installment of the Paper Machete's month-long Fresh Meat series, wherein every single comic and writer is a bona fide, brand spanking new machete first-timer. And, and, at the end of the show, if there's time, I have a proposed four-point solution to resolve the crisis in Gaza. But that's if there's time, if we don't, if we don't run long. <laughs> Masthead Roll Call, Chandler Goodman. Here. Tim Mason. There. Jordan Klepper. White mystery. Each and every one a Scientologist. Our loyal audience of almost late bloomers, cheap beer consumers, early adopters, dialogue prompters, clever assholes, chicks with brass balls, daytime drinkers, culture vultures, dreamers, schemers, screamers, nice, decent church people, and all the members of the Obama administration who are listening today live via wiretap. If you can hear my voice, then ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, hipsters and hopheads, writers of op-eds, Mindama and Unheron and kinfolk, this live magazine is officially live, and we are all about to read it together. We begin this week with the financial report. Here to brief us on Burger King's latest tax strategy is a comedian who is, of course, making his machete debut. Give a warm greeting and welcome to Chandler Goodman, everybody. <laughs> Hello. Earlier this week, American fast food giant Burger King landed in the news when it announced its intention to purchase the Canadian coffee and donut chain Tim Hortons in what some analysts are hopefully calling a whopper of a deal. You're welcome. While the proposed Burger King-Hortons merger was celebrated on Wall Street the way Wall Street celebrates mergers with a dazzling array of fist bumps, ball taps, dick tickles, and bro hugs. In both the U.S. and Canada, the announcement has sparked significant public backlash, albeit for reasons very particular to those two countries. In the U.S., public backlash has stemmed from the news that Burger King, or BK as it's known among its core clientele of 16-year-old stoners and moms who have given up, <laughs> will soon be moving its headquarters to Tim Hortons' hometown of Oakville, Ontario thus resulting in yet another major American company achieving a so-called tax inversion. Tax inversions, for those wondering, occur when an American corporation buys a smaller foreign rival, then reincorporates its headquarters overseas. By moving their headquarters to countries with lower tax rates, those companies lower their tax bills in America and save a lot of money. Companies like saving money. However, as a wave of these inversions has been announced over the past summer, 
Opponents of the practice have become increasingly vocal. President Obama weighed in on the matter last month, calling inversion strategies unpatriotic and the companies that pursue them corporate deserters. And that's bad, because President Obama doesn't really like talking shit. <laughs> in Canada, the public backlash against the BK Hortons merger has erupted for wholly different reasons. In fact, north of the border, concerns about the deal have not been economic at all, but rather cultural. Basically, Canadians are obsessed with Tim Hortons, and they're afraid Burger King's gonna get in there and ruin Timmy's in all its Canadian glory. For instance, one Canadian, and this is 100% real, told Bloomberg News this week, when I drive by towns and I see a Tim Hortons, I think, that's a good place to live, cause look, they've got a Timmy's. I don't want that to change. In fact, as it turns out, the reason that Burger King has elected to locate its headquarters in Canada is not actually to achieve tax savings, but rather because the Canadian government views Tim Hortons as, quote, a national icon and has threatened to block the merger if Timmy's doesn't remain Canadian-owned. Both the Canadian and the U.S. response, albeit for different reasons, are deeply misguided. First, the Canadian response. Oh, Canada. Canada... Canada, Canada. Sometimes we all think to ourselves, do we make fun of Canada too much? And is making fun of Canada too easy? But then they go and act so Canadian. <laughs> Canada's reaction to this merger couldn't be more Canadian if two moose started making out at a Bare Naked Ladies concert. <laughs> Let's be clear about what Tim Hortons is. It is a chain of 4,000 donut stores. It is all of 50 years old. It is named after a hockey player who founded it, because of course it is. <laughs> it is primarily known for serving double doubles, which are a cup of coffee with double the sugar and double the cream, and for Timbits, which are just the whole of a donut sold on its own. You know, what we call a donut hole. In talking with reporters this week, Tim Horton CEO, Mark Sierra, and again, this is 100% real, <laughs> described Timbits as, quote, as much a symbol of Canada as the beaver or the Mountie. <laughs> to be clear, Canada's three national symbols are apparently a semi-aquatic rodent, a goofy-looking cop on a horse, and the hole in the middle of a donut. You know, a donut hole. <laughs> and that, that is why it's a national priority that Tim Hortons remain Canadian-owned. In America, this would be like if Dunkin' Donuts was called Troy Aikman's, but if instead of treating Troy Aikman's like Dunkin' Donuts, we started treating Troy Aikman's like it was the f***ing Smithsonian. <laughs> or if Krispy Kreme was not called Krispy Kreme, but was instead called Carl Malone's. But instead of treating Carl Malone donuts like donuts, we started treating them like a million little goddamn Liberty Bells. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts is not the Smithsonian. Jelly Rolls, Crullers, and Timbits are not Liberty Bells. This is an insane reason to block a merger. Now, in the US, while the response has been less Celine Dion bathing in a tub of maple syrup, Canada being Canada hilarious, the backlash against Burger King's headquarters relocation has been misguided in its own way. American outrage is justified and understandable. 
it seems obvious that if you are from here and most of your employees are here and you poison us with something called chicken fries here, <laughs> you should pay your fair share of taxes here. We think this way because we are people. Corporations, as if we didn't already know this, are not people. They do not think like people, they do not act like people, they do not comport with a people-like sense of fairness. Corporations are in the business of making money for shareholders. For the government to try to flame broil Burger King, you're welcome, or any other company for jumping through tax loopholes is like Wile E. Coyote being shocked at the Roadrunner's gall. Roadrunners run road. Companies dodge taxes. This is how it goes. In the Citizens United era, in which we have officially sanctioned corporations' participation in the political process and afforded them rights to free speech under the First Amendment, what we need is not to further contort our tax code into an even more elaborate Wiley Coyote Rube Goldberg device just so that we can stop inversions. Inversions are just the latest system. What we need is to blow up the tax code and rebuild it around a real definition of what corporate citizenship means and what expectations and duties it entails. Because if corporations are truly citizens, then they need to step up and act like citizens. You know, by avoiding jury duty, constantly bitching about but begrudgingly paying their taxes, then strapping on a Stars and Stripe bandana or a bald eager t-shirt whenever the Olympic slash World Cup slash major terrorist killing provides an opportunity to get blackout drunk and chant USA. Because when it comes to citizenship, big or small, person or company, you can't just have it your way. His name is Chandler Goodman. One more time. This week on Chewing the Fat, it's the Supermarkets episode. I'm Louisa Chu. And I'm Monica Eng. This week we visit Chicago's only open co-op, The Dill Pickle. And we talk favorite markets worldwide with Eating Asia blogger and author Robin Eckert. Plus, I go behind the scenes at the Aldi U.S. headquarters. Listen for new episodes every Thursday. Just stream, download, or subscribe to our food podcast at wbez.org slash chewingthefat. All right, of course, we're all concerned about last weekend's earthquake in California, Northern California, and I know what we're all thinking. How does this affect the wine country community, right? It's a, it's a pressing issue. Uh, here to comment is the co-president of the Edgerton Family Vineyard. Welcome, Mr. Randall Edgerton, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. My name is Randall Edgerton. I am co-president of the Edgerton Family Vineyards. And these are my notes on the earthquake. I was in my bed in the vineyard with Rebecca. Rebecca is, of course, my partner in business and also in amore. (laughs) Rebecca and I had just finished making love. It was 
a robust session. <laughs> the lovemaking started out very crisp, <laughs> lively. We had a refined, elegant polish. There were delicate overtones of a fleshy musk <laughs> and essences of citrus. It was a nice session, and just when I thought the session was over, the lovemaking opened up into something much more surprisingly aggressive and outright bitter. It had traces of both unbridled passion and extremely angry, almost stone fruit-like self-loathing. <laughs> the entire thing culminated in a full-bodied, powerful ending that had distinct aromas of sweat, water-based lubricant, <laughs> and gooseberries for some reason. <laughs> it had a smoky finish. And it was there in bed as we were smoking our clove cigarettes that the earthquake first began to show itself. Now, this earthquake opened up with a slow wave-like rumble that softly moved the bed um, as if a grotesquely obese person was trying to crawl into bed with us. <laughs> it immediately brought me back to a time in my life when I was unfortunately seated on an airplane next to Louis Anderson. It was nice, it was pleasant, but it was more person than I was really ready to sit next to at the time. The earthquake then progressed into a jarring, a sharp, angular, almost shaking. It threw my body around in a violent, destructive way, reminiscent of the way Rebecca, my lover, had thrown me around just minutes before. <laughs> However, this time it was absent the crying and the random, somewhat inappropriate, very forceful biting. <laughs> a concentrated jolt hit the room. I turned to my love, Rebecca, and I said, Earthquake! <laughs> In a way that was both informative and slightly effeminate. <laughs> the pitch, the timber of my voice, uh, somewhere between a 10-year-old Girl Scout lost in the woods and... Uh, a 65-year-old drag queen sucking helium. <laughs> Rebecca and I disembarked the bed. I headed towards the door, leaving my partner and lover, Rebecca, behind. She jammed her toe on the leg of the bed, and she began to whine. <laughs> Rebecca's whine. This wine transcends all other earthly wines. Rebecca's talents as a winemaker 
make all other winemakers jealous. It, it, she's following in the German tradition of winemaking and the Italian tradition of winemaking, where we start with a guttural, a guttural noise, almost glandular, at the back of the throat. It was a hollow, leathery, whoa, that then full-bodied into the mouth went, eh, and then ended with a crisp on the tooth, Again, the wine I experienced was, wait, wait, and she followed it with a quick, you bastard. <laughs> I will never forget that wine. I, of course, did not wait, there being an earthquake. <laughs> I grabbed my prized possession, a 1996 Screaming Eagle Cabernet Sauvignon. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I ran to the front yard. Rebecca, my lover, emerged a few minutes later, her face blackened with dust, reminiscent of a old-timey minstrel show or, or a highly offensive theme party at a southern fraternity. She held two wine glasses in her hand and a corkscrew. Silently, as the ground continued to shake in aftershock after aftershock, we opened up our bottle of cab and we drank it. It was, I don't know, grapey. We finished the bottle and passed out on the front lawn. That's all I remember of the earthquake. If anyone has heard from Rebecca, could you let me know if she's okay? She wasn't there when I woke up. Thank you very much. How about that? That was the long-awaited paper machete debut of the Second City Main Stage's veteran, Mr. Tim Mason is his name. It's time for the comedy report, and we're going to talk about Joan Rivers, which is going to be poignant. Uh, and this is the last performer in our month-long Fresh Meat series, All Paper Machete First Timers. Um, and right before I bring this guy on, I have to say a couple of quick words about him, and I'm going to try not to get verklempt or make anybody, including him, uncomfortable. But I have to say that even though this is his Paper Machete debut, he actually has a very specific, important role in paper machete history. Here's what that's about. Um, back when I was a journalist a long time ago, um, I was kind of like a comedy groupie stalker, basically. And this next performer was, I would call him one of my original Jodie Fosters, as it were. Wow. Um, 
I watched him play all the time. He was on an amazing sketch and improv team called uh, American Dream. Uh, he was the original host of a thing called The Late Night Late Show that is one of my all-time favorite Chicago comedy enterprises. And uh, he did amazing uh, sketch work with his partner, Steve Waltine, who eventually ended up on the Second City main stage. And I just loved his work. I thought it was hilarious. So when I produced my first ever show, which coincidentally was five years ago last week, my first ever show, which was the pilot for the paper machete, which I don't even think I told him it was a pilot at the time. But uh, I was like, hey, you want to come in this thing? And he was a mensch, and he said yes. So he was the first performer in the original pilot of the paper machete. So he's literally the first guy to help lift this series off the ground. But then he had to move to New York with his lady to try and break into professional show business, which was understandable. So he never actually got to be in the actual show once we launched the series. And like everyone in his life was in the show. Like his wife was in the show and his crabby feminist ex-girlfriend was in the show. <laughs> and uh, uh, all his drinking buddies, all his teammates, everybody in his life was in the show. But he, he, for whatever reason, just it never worked out that he could be in the paper machete. But then he got asked to be on another show and so it had like a, a Pixar ending, as it were. And uh, I'm real proud of him. Uh, and I'm so thrilled that these five years later, I finally get to say the following sentence. This is the paper machete debut of Daily Show correspondent, Mr. Jordan Klepper. Thank you. Give it up for the creepy Christopher Pyatt, everybody. So creepy. This is The Paper Machete, a show that focuses on topical events. I'd like to talk about something that happened 50 years ago. <laughs> now, what got me thinking about 50 years ago was a sad event that happened just a few days ago. Comedian Joan Rivers was taken to the hospital in cardiac arrest. Now, as of today, she is resting in the hospital, and doctors are optimistic, but they are cautious. In a month where the feeling of losing a comedic icon is still fresh in our minds, our thoughts are, are with Joan. May she treat her sickness like she treats political correctness and blow right past it. <laughs> now, I do not know Joan Rivers. I have never met her. When I was a teenager, she was like a vagina to me. <laughs> Something I was aware of but had never seen. <laughs> a few years later, I saw some videos of her, and again, just like a vagina, she was something I still had no personal relationship with but had seen on my computer and thought was pretty great. <laughs> now... There's a story about Joan Rivers here in Chicago that has become both lore and a teaching tool for many of the improv theaters and the schools in town. As I took classes at I.O. and Second City, I heard this story repeatedly. Joan was an early member of the Second City and performed with Del Close, who went on to found the Improv Olympic and is considered the creator of long-form improvisation. Now, for those who don't know what long-form improvisation is, at its best, it looks like a transcendent one-act play. At its worst, it's like 10 35-year-old guys talking about genitals swimming through a pool. Uh, I say this lovingly as I've devoted 15 years of my life to it, and I talked about a vagina like a minute and a half ago. Uh, anyway, this Rivers Close scene is legendary, and it's told to all the improv students here in town. Now, back in the 60s, Joan Rivers and Del Close were doing a scene. The scene began with Joan declaring, Honey, I want a divorce. To which Del Close responded, But honey, what about the kids? And then Joan shot back, We don't have any kids. <laughs> so the audience lost it. They couldn't stop laughing. Yet in the improv community, this story isn't told in a positive light. It's told as a cautionary tale of what you shouldn't do in improv. 
Now, I'm sure someone's saying, oh, they teach you in improv how not to be funny. Yeah, I could have told you that. <laughs> Screw that guy. Screw that guy, if you're here. All right? Now, the criticism of this scene is that Del Close established the couple had children and that Joan Rivers denied the reality just to get a laugh. Now, this talk isn't a eulogy for Joan Rivers. She's a tough, strong lady, and I have faith she will come out of that hospital kicking and screaming. This talk is a defense of that moment. So, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to do what improvisers do hour after hour, and I'd like to overanalyze a mildly funny scene. No. Okay, so it starts. Joan Rivers makes a bold, strong declaration at the beginning of this scene. I want a divorce. Now, it's clean, it's precise, and relatable to anybody who's made the foolish decision to spend the rest of their life sleeping with one person. <laughs> now, this statement establishes that Joan and Dell are a married couple. It also establishes that Joan Rivers did the toughest thing there is to do in improv. She started it. Improv has often been criticized as a boys' club and I can only imagine what the improv scene was like in the early 60s. So it is of note that when stepping onto that stage with a notorious, brusque gentleman, it was Joan Rivers who had the balls to get the ball rolling. Now Del Close responds, but honey, what about the children? And improv disciples will laud this as a supportive use of yes and. Del is adding information to the scene and furthering the reality of the scene. But if you're a stickler for improv rules, and if you're 22 with no social life, you probably are. <laughs> This response is actually a question, and good improv doesn't ask questions. Why? Because it puts pressure on your partner to invent. So now Dell is forcing Joan to answer the question, what about the children? So she's on the spot. And so far, this scene hasn't gotten any reaction from the crowd of smoking Chicagoans who are thinking about the Cuban Missile Crisis and playing with their slinkies and silly putty. It's the 60s. Um, and so Joan, Joan has a joke something funny to say. And in the academic world of improv, this isn't the purpose of the work. But to everyone in that room, there's only one reason they put off doing LSD and driving a Chevelle and came to that theater. They want to laugh. So Joan takes the shot. We don't have any kids. And she hits. Laughter. A room of 200 people feels joy. Now Joan Rivers didn't have time to wait. She spent half a second in Chicago before running off to New York to conquer the stand-up scene. And in a few years, she was trailblazing on Carson. She didn't dwell and wait for others to support her. She supported herself and got to the funny the fastest way she knew how. Now, the Del Close side of it is a beautiful side, one in which I've dedicated much of my life to. This weekend is the opening of a giant $7 million version of a theater that he created, an art based on love, support, and people pretending to be cats on stage. <laughs> now, the teaching side of this Joan Rivers anecdote has validity. Take care of your partner. But there's not, not one improviser alive who doesn't feel the pull of a joke or the need of a crowd. And sometimes you take the shot. Sometimes you don't wait. You keep moving. Adele Close has a theater, and Joan Rivers has her work. And I'd like to leave you with one of her jokes. She said, I knew I was an unwanted baby when I saw that my bath toys were a toaster and a radio. <laughs> Get well, Joan Rivers.
The Paper Machete is produced by me, Christopher Pyatt. Our managing editor is Kim Belware. Our sound engineer is Brian Heath. Our podcast is produced by WBEZ. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit us online at thepapermachete.com. Or you can catch us live every Saturday afternoon at the Green Mill in Chicago, home of the famous Uptown Poetry Slam. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.